Micah chapter 4 describes the last days, the days of Christ. 4 verse 1, And it will come about in the last days that the mountain of the house of the Lord will be established as the chief of the mountains. It will be raised above the hills, and the peoples will stream to it. And many nations will come and say, Come, and let us go up to the mountain of the Lord and to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us about his ways, and that, he, and that we may walk in his paths. For from Zion will go forth the law, even the word of the Lord from Jerusalem, and he will judge between many peoples and render decisions for mighty distant nations. Then they will hammer their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not lift up sword against nation, and never again will they train for war. And each of them will sit under his vine and under his fig tree, with no one to make them afraid. For the mouth of the Lord of hosts has spoken. Though all the peoples walk, each in the name of his God, as for us, we will walk in the name of the Lord our God forever and ever. In that day, declares the Lord, I will assemble the lame and gather the outcasts, even those whom I have afflicted. I will make the lame a remnant and the outcasts a strong nation, and the Lord will reign over them in Mount Zion from now on and forever. And as for you, tower of the flock, hill of the daughter of Zion, to you it will come, even the former dominion will come, the kingdom of the daughter of Jerusalem. Now, why do you cry out loudly? Is there no king among you? Or has your counselor perished, that agony has gripped you like a woman in childbirth? Writhe and labor to give birth, daughter of Zion, like a woman in childbirth. For now you will go out of the city, dwell in the field, and go to Babylon. There you will be rescued. There the Lord will redeem you from the hand of your enemies. And now many nations have been assembled against you who say, Let her be polluted, and let our eyes gloat over Zion. But they do not know the thoughts of the Lord, and they do not understand his purpose. For he has gathered them like sheaves to the threshing floor. Arise and thresh, daughter of Zion, for your horn I will make iron, and your hoofs I will make bronze, that you may pulverize many peoples, that you may devote to the Lord their unjust gain, and their wealth to the Lord of all the earth. Amen. We said this is a description of the latter days, the days of Christ. These are, this is a description of the time between the first and the second comings of Christ. That's what Micah the prophet is prophesying. In the last chapter, he denounced the rulers or the leaders of the people. And at the end of it, in verse 12, he predicted the destruction of the temple and the mountain of the temple in Jerusalem. After saying that and after confirming the utter and complete destruction of the people and their holy place, the temple, he now turns to encourage the remnant. He turns to encourage the people of God. Remember that the prophets do this very often. Sometimes it will be in their one sentence, one verse, sometimes in a, within a paragraph. Sometimes there will be a few paragraphs of judgment and then a few of redemption. They alternate between judgment and redemption, salvation and condemnation, back and forth to draw the wicked to the fear of God, to the true knowledge of God and His righteous judgments, and confirm even to those unrepentant wicked people that their judgment is certain. But at the same time, to encourage the righteous that the wicked will be punished and that the righteous will not always be afflicted, and that their salvation found in Christ is guaranteed, it's sure, it's stable, it will last forever. The prophets are always talking about both of these subjects, or these two major groups of people, the wicked and the righteous. All right? They're always preaching Christ. They preach about nothing except Christ, as Christ even taught us. Many times in the New Testament, and the apostles taught us 
many times in the book of Acts and so forth, that this is the case with the prophets. Uh, one example of Christ is in John 5, 39 to 47, where he actually does say that it's all about him, that Moses preached Christ. John 5, John 5, 39 to 47. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is these that bear witness of me. And you are unwilling to come to me that you may have life. I do not receive glory from men, but I know you, that you do not have the love of God in yourselves. I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If another shall come in his own name, you will receive him. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and you do not seek the glory that is from the one and only God? Do not think that I will accuse you before the Father. The one who accuses you is Moses, in whom you have set your hope. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? Further, Luke 24, on the road to Emmaus, when Jesus encountered those two disciples, Cleopas and another unnamed disciple, when he met them, and they were astonished at the report that Christ had risen from the dead. Luke 24, 25, this is the answer Christ gave to them when they were astonished. 24, 25, and he said to them, O foolish men, and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary for the Christ to suffer these things and to enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and with all the prophets, he explained to them the things concerning himself in all the scriptures. This confirms that Jesus included Micah, all the prophets. He starts with Moses and all the prophets. They preached Christ. Now, if they preached Christ, and that is the setting of this passage in Micah chapter 4, it is best to take this passage as referring to spiritual truths that are evident in the last days. Spiritual truths evident in the last days. Instead of trying to pinpoint every single verse and every single word with an event in history, leading up to the coming of Christ and the apostles, or post-apostolic era. There are certain elements that are certainly historical here, but the main point is the spiritual truths of what is fulfilled in the days of Christ, or in the last days. With that in mind, look at verse 1. And it will come about in the last days. Here we have this phrase, in the last days. This passage actually is also cited in Isaiah, Isaiah 2, 1 to 4. Micah 4, 1 to 3 equals Isaiah 2, 1 to 4. Because these two prophets were contemporaries, so it should not be a surprise to us that God gave them a similar oracle. Micah 4, 1 to 3 equals Isaiah 2, 1 to 4. We'll come back to Isaiah in a few moments. But first, when we say in the last days, this phrase is actually taken up in several places in the New Testament. Several places, um, either in the exact words or in similar words. Firstly, let's go to Hebrews chapter 1. Hebrews 1, verse 1. Verses 1 and 2. Hebrews 1, 1 to 2 will give us a definition or a time frame for the last days. Hebrews 1, 1. God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers in the prophets, in many portions and in many ways, in these last days has spoken to us in his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the world. It says, in the last days, in these last days, has spoken to us in his Son. When Christ appeared in his first coming, 
That was the beginning of the last days. In fact, the time that comprises the first coming to the second coming of Christ is the biblical definition of the last days, which means we live in the last days. The time between his first and second comings, that is the last days. 1 Corinthians chapter 10. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 11. 10, 11. Now, these things happened to them as an example, and they were written for our instruction, upon whom the ends of the ages have come. The ends of the ages have come upon whom? Come upon us, the Corinthians and their successors, which includes you and me. Further, we see 2 Timothy 3, verse 1. 2 Timothy 3, verse 1. But realize this, that in the last days, difficult times will come. Paul the Apostle tells Timothy the pastor, difficult times will come in the last days, which means Timothy is living in the last days for him to say so. Further, 2 Peter chapter 3. 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 3. 2 Peter 3, 3. Know this, first of all, that in the last days, mockers will come with their mocking, following after their own lusts, and saying, Where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all continues just as it was from the beginning of creation. What do the mockers do? They know that in the first coming of Christ, Christ our Lord preached his second coming. But some time has passed and the second coming hasn't happened. And Peter says, in the last days, there will be mockers saying this about the return of Christ. It hasn't happened yet. When is it going to happen? It's not going to happen. Everything is just the same as it used to be. There is no catastrophe. There's no judgment. Nothing has happened. He has not returned. Well, this means that last days has to include the period in which Peter's writing until the return of Christ. And one more place is 1 John 2, 18. 1 John 2, 18, where John uses a different phrase, but he means the same. 1 John 2, 18, children, it is the last hour. It is the last hour. And just as you heard that Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have arisen. From this, we know that it is the last hour. The last hour. So, between the first and second coming of Christ. That's the last days. Then, verse 1, Micah 4, 1 also says that the mountain of the house of the Lord will be established as the chief of the mountains. It will be raised above the hills and the peoples will stream to it. The mountain of the house of the Lord. That's the mountain of the temple. The temple mount, which he mentions in verse 12, chapter 3, verse 12, that there will be destruction in Jerusalem and Zion, these mountains in the capital, destroyed. But then he encourages us in chapter 4, verse 1, by saying that the mountain of the house of the Lord will be established as the chief of the mountains. How will it be that after that destruction and misery, that this mountain will be the chief of the mountains. What does that mountain represent? Or who does that mountain represent? Remember we said that Isaiah has a similar passage? Well, let's go read it now. Isaiah chapter 2. Isaiah 2, 1 to 4. And then we will notice a couple of references in Isaiah. 
Isaiah 2, 1-4. The word which came, the word which Isaiah the son of Amos saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. Now it will come about that in the last days the mountain of the house of the Lord will be established as the chief of the mountains and will be raised above the hills and all the nations will stream to it. And many peoples will come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us concerning his ways, and that we may walk in his paths. For the law will go forth from Zion, and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. And he will judge between the nations, and will render decisions for many peoples. And they will hammer their swords into plowshares, and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not lift up sword against nation, and never again will they learn war. He says there that it will be just as Micah says it will be. But we should ask, what is this mountain or who is this mountain? The mountain of the house of the Lord. If there is symbolism and spiritual illustrations in the Old Testament for the purpose of understanding these truths, what are we talking about? Keep your place and go to Isaiah 30. Isaiah 30. Isaiah 30, verse 29. 30, 29. We're asking what is the mountain of the Lord or what is the mountain of the house of the Lord? Isaiah 30, 29. You will have songs as in the night, when you keep festival, and gladness of heart as when one marches to the sound of the flute, to go to the mountain of the Lord, to the rock of Israel. He says here that those who rejoice will go to the mountain of the Lord. Who is the mountain of the Lord? The same as the rock of Israel, correct? Because he says to go to the mountain of the Lord, comma, to the, rock of Is- uh, to the rock of Israel. So the rock of Israel is the same as the mountain of the Lord. The NASB capitalizes rock, capitalizes the R of rock, indicating that the editors believe this is a reference to deity, reference to God. But who is it? Is it the Father, the Son, or the Holy Spirit? The Father, the Son, or the Holy Spirit. Turn to Isaiah 28. Isaiah chapter 28. 28, 16. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a tested stone, a costly cornerstone for the foundation, firmly placed. He who believes in it will not be put to shame or disturbed. Here, who is this stone, tested, costly cornerstone that God lays in Zion? And says, he who believes in it, believes in it, the stone, will not be put to shame. Who is that? Isaiah chapter 8. Isaiah 8, we'll start at 13. 8, 13 to 15. Isaiah 8, 13 to 15. It is the Lord of hosts whom you should regard as holy, and he shall be your fear, and he shall be your dread. Then he shall become a sanctuary, but to both the houses of Israel, a stone to strike and a rock to stumble over and a snare and a trap for the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And many will stumble over them. Then they will fall and be broken. They will even be snared and caught. Who is the Lord that should be regarded as holy? Who is the stone and the rock here? over which the people of Israel stumble. 1 Peter chapter 2. 
will answer the, the question. First Peter chapter two. Two four to ten. First Peter two four. And coming to him as to a living stone, rejected by men, but choice and precious in the sight of God. You also, as living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood, to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For this is contained in Scripture. Behold, I lay in Zion a choice stone, a precious cornerstone, and he who believes in him shall not be put to shame. This precious value, then, is for you who believe, but for those who disbelieve, the stone which the builders rejected, this became the very cornerstone, and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. For they stumble because they are disobedient to the word, and to this doom they were also appointed. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. For you once were not a people, but now you are the people of God. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Peter the Apostle says, this stone is Christ. Also, in reference to Isaiah 8, not only the stone of Isaiah 8, but the Holy One of Isaiah 8, the one, the Lord that we should regard as holy. 1 Peter, 1 Peter 3. 1 Peter 3. 13 to 15. 1 Peter 3, 13. And who is there to harm you if you prove zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, you are blessed and do not fear their intimidation and do not be troubled. But sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you, yet with gentleness and respect. In 15, when it says, sanctify Christ as Lord, to sanctify means to make holy, to set apart as holy. Just like Isaiah said in Isaiah 8, 13 to 15. So Isaiah in Isaiah 8 was preaching Christ as holy and Christ as the stone over which people stumble. The two nations of Israel stumble over Christ. With that in mind, this mountain to which the peoples of the world stream is Christ. In Micah 4.1, they stream, they flow, they come up to Christ. Verse 2, Micah 4.2, And many nations will come and say, Come and let us go up to the mountain of the Lord and to the house of the God of Jacob. That he, notice even Micah now, personifies the mountain. He says, Let's go to the mountain, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he, Micah personifies the mountain as a he. And who is the he? Christ. That Christ may teach us about his ways and that we may walk in his paths. Christ is our teacher. Correct? He's our teacher and Lord. So the nations of the world, Micah says, will stream to Christ and will exhort one another to learn from Christ. And learn what? Verse 2. For from Zion will go forth the law, even the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. What law is going forth? The same law right there is called the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. It's the word of the gospel. It's the word of Christ. The word of Christ is the law of Christ. The law of Christ is the word of Christ, the word of the Lord. And where did it originate when it was dispersed abroad? Where did it originate when it was published abroad? Luke 24, 46 to 47 says, beginning from Jerusalem. Beginning from Jerusalem. That's where it spread. 
Jerusalem, Acts 1.8, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and then to the uttermost parts of the, of the earth. It starts all in Jerusalem, starting in Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost in terms of it spreading abroad because there were Jews and proselytes from many nations there on the day of Pentecost. And 3,000 souls were saved. There was a large crowd and a large number saved. A small percentage of the large crowd, but still a large number saved from many nations. And that's where they learned it first from the apostles, and then they went back to their homelands, both Jews and Gentiles, who were converted on the day of Pentecost. And that's when it starts to spread to the many nations. And what's the result? Verse 3. What's the result of the proclamation of the gospel? Verse 3. And he will judge between many peoples and render decisions for mighty distant nations. So Christ is the supreme judge of every man, of every person. Christ is that judge. And when Christ is the judge, we submit to him. When Christ is the judge, we must listen to him. Romans 14, 10 to 12. Romans 14, 10 to 12. Let's actually start at verse 9. Romans 14, 9 to 12. For to this end, Christ died and lived again, that he might be Lord both of the dead and of the living. Who is the Lord? Christ is. But you, why do you judge your brother? Or you again, why do you regard your brother with contempt? For we shall all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall give praise to God. So then, each one of us shall give an account of himself to God. It starts at our conversion and it continues until the day of judgment. Every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the, glo- to the glory of God the Father. Philippians 2, 5-11 teaches. So, Micah is preaching the same, that Christ is the judge, the decider, the arbiter between many nations and bring them under his authority. This phrase, distant nations, it's actually a very interesting phrase that is picked up in Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2, Peter says the following in 2.39. Acts 2.39. For the promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God shall call to himself. The distant nations are those who are far off that God calls to himself. Another verse on election. Ephesians 2. Ephesians 2.13. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who formerly were far off, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Verse 17, And he came and preached peace to you who are far away and peace to those who were near, which is Isaiah fifty-seven nineteen. Ephesians two seventeen is a quote of Isaiah fifty-seven nineteen. Isaiah and Micah were saying, Far-off nations are going to hear the gospel and believe it. Also, we see in Micah 4, verse 3, that these nations will hammer their swords into plowshares, spears into pruning hooks. They're not going to lift up sword against one another or train for war against one another. Because they are in Christ, 
they are not going to be waging war against each other. But they will be peace-loving people, law keepers, wanting to live a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. First Peter, or First Timothy, First Timothy 2, 1 to 7 teaches that. In Ephesians 4, 28, it says, Let him who steals steal no longer, but rather let him labor, performing with his own hands what is good, in order that he may have something to share with him who has need. Instead of fighting each other, stealing from each other, plundering each other, he's teaching the believers, we don't do that anymore. Instead, we work hard and share with the needy. That's what we do now. Even in Luke 3.14, John the Baptist, he taught the soldiers something like this. <coughs> Luke 3.14, John the Baptist taught the soldiers. And some soldiers were questioning him, saying, And what about us? What shall we do? And he said to them, Do not take money from anyone by force or accuse anyone falsely and be content with your wages. Further, Luke 19. Luke 19, in the conversion of Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus, he was a tax collector and a cheater, right? became very rich from cheating the people. Well, what does Zacchaeus say he's going to do? No more is he going to pillage and plunder the people. What's he going to do? Verse 8. Luke 19, 1 to 10. We'll, we'll start at verse 8. And Zacchaeus stopped and said to the Lord, Lord, behold, Lord, half of my possessions I will give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I will give back four times as much. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, because he too is a son of Abraham, for the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. So, there is peace, there is tranquility between the people of God, because this is the way they want to live in Christ. Verse 4 further explains that in a typical typical Old Testament way. Micah 4.4, 4, And each of them will sit under his vine and under his fig tree with no one to make them afraid. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Everyone's going to sit under his vine and under his fig tree. In the days of Solomon, when there was great peace and prosperity, it's described like that as well. In 1 Kings 4, 25. 1 Kings 4, 25. So Judah and Israel lived in safety, every man under his vine and his fig tree, from Dan even to Beersheba all the days of Solomon. In the 40 years of his peaceful strong reign that God granted to them. Judah and Jerusalem, or Judah and Israel, lived in peace. It says, under his vine and under his fig tree, with no one to bother them. Yes, those trees are for shade, for relaxation, for enjoying the weather, for having picnics, having the family around and friends around. That's what people do. When there is no one to bother them, no one to molest them, that's what they do. And Micah says, a day is coming when God will give this kind of peace to the church. And how certain can we be of this? Very certain. For the mouth of the Lord of hosts has spoken. It's the Lord of hosts, the Lord of armies. He has spoken it. He's going to ensure that it happens. So we should believe it. Believe whatever he says. Five. Now a division or separation is mentioned here. This is unique to Micah. Isaiah didn't say this part here. Though all the peoples walk, each in the name of his God, as for us, 
We will walk in the name of the Lord our God forever and ever. Correction, I meant to say verses 4 and 5 Isaiah did not include, but Micah does. So in verse 5, all the peoples walk. They let them do whatever they want. Though all the peoples walk, he's talking about all the unbelieving peoples of the earth because there are some believers according to verses 1 to 3. But the rest of them who remain in their unbelief, in their sin, let them walk each in the name of his God. They might walk that way, and it might be the great majority of them, and it is the great majority of them. They're going to continue walking in idolatry, following their own gods. They might do so, but we're not going to be bothered by it. He says, though all the peoples walk each in the name of his God, as for us, it doesn't matter. We don't care what everybody else is doing. You shall not follow a multitude in doing evil, Exodus 23.2. So what are we going to do? As for us, we will walk in the name of the Lord our God forever and ever. Joshua 24.14. Joshua 24.14 spoke of this kind of separation. 24.14 of the book of Joshua. He says... Now therefore fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and truth and put away the gods which your father served beyond the river and in Egypt and serve the Lord. And if it is disagreeable in your sight to serve the Lord, choose for yourselves today whom you will serve, whether the gods which your father served, which were beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you are living. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. As for me and my house, like Micah, as for us, we will walk in the name of the Lord our God forever and ever. We're going to serve the Lord. And 2 Corinthians 6, 14 to 18 teaches likewise. 2 Corinthians 6, 14 to 18. Do not be bound together with unbelievers. For what partnership have righteousness and lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? Or what harmony has Christ with Belial? Or what has a believer in common with an unbeliever? Or what agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God, just as God said. I will dwell in them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Therefore, come out from their midst and be separate, says the Lord, and do not touch what is unclean, and I will welcome you, and I will be a father to you, and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. We ought to boast in the name of the Lord our God also, always, even when we have to separate from the vast majority of people who are following their idols. Micah 4, 6. Micah 4, 6. He continues with what God will do. In that day, declares the Lord, I will assemble the lame and gather the outcasts even those whom I have afflicted. I will make the lame a remnant and the outcasts a strong nation, and the Lord will reign over them in Mount Zion from now on and forever. Who is he describing? What's he describing here? He's describing the remnant. He uses that word in verse 7. These lame, outcasts, afflicted ones are also called remnant and strong nation in verses 6 and 7. Remnant and strong nation. So, let's see other verses that do the same. Zephaniah 3, Zephaniah 3, 19. Zephaniah 3, 19. We'll read 19... Uh, let's read actually 317, 317 to 20. Zephaniah 317 to 20. The Lord your God is in your midst, a victorious warrior. He will exult over you with joy. He will be quiet in his love. He will rejoice over you with shouts of joy. I will gather those who grieve about the appointed feasts. They came from you, O Zion. The reproach of exile is a burden on them. Behold, I am going to deal at that time with all your oppressors. I will save the lame and gather the outcasts. 
and I will turn their shame into praise and renown in all the earth. At that time I will bring you in, even at the time when I gather you together. Indeed, I will give you renown and praise among all the peoples of the earth when I restore your fortunes before your eyes, says the Lord. In both James 1.1 and 1 Peter 1.1, he describes those who are scattered abroad. God is gathering the scattered. God gathers the scattered. That's what Micah's preaching, Zephaniah's preaching, and James 1.1 and 1 Peter 1.1 describe the church as being those who are scattered abroad or dispersed abroad that are now saved under Christ or in Christ saved. Remember John eleven fifty one to 53. John eleven fifty one to 53, where a prophecy is made of the children of God scattered abroad. It says... John eleven fifty one. Now this he did not say on his own initiative, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus was going to die for the nation, and not for the nation only, but that he might also gather together into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. But his enemies hate that, so from that day on they plan together to kill him. The people of God or the children of God scattered abroad, God gathers together. Jesus also said in John ten sixteen, John ten sixteen, I have other sheep which are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they shall hear my voice, and they shall become one flock with one shepherd. Christ is the one who gathers the scattered into one fold. And the Lord will reign over them in Mount Zion from now on and forever. The Lord will reign over them in Mount Zion from now on and forever. God is the reign, uh, the ruler who reigns, and he reigns in Mount Zion. And where is Mount Zion? In heaven. The ultimate Mount Zion is in heaven. Hebrews 12.22 actually does say that we believers have come to Mount Zion. We have come to Mount Zion. Hebrews 12.22 Further, further we have in Psalm 11 verse 4 Psalm 11.4, the Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. His holy temple, his throne is in heaven. That's where he reigns, also called Mount Zion. The earthly Mount Zion just typified the heavenly Mount Zion, the heavenly city. And when God reigns, he reigns from beginning to end. There is no way to breach what God starts from now on and forever. God secures our salvation. Verse 8. Verse 8. But as, and as for you, tower of the flock, hill of the daughter of Zion. Th- this w- phrase, tower of the flock, is a translation. If it were transliterated, it would be called Migdal Eder. Migdal Eder means tower of the flock. This first appears in Genesis 35, 21. This is the place where, the area where Rachel was buried because she died along the way to Ephrathah or to Bethlehem. She died on the way. And Bethlehem, tower of the flock, and Jerusalem are not too far from each other, just a a few miles, a couple of miles away from each other. So not very far at all. So who is to be born in Bethlehem? 
and reign in Jerusalem. Micah 5.2 says it's Christ. But as for you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you one will go forth for me to be ruler in Israel. His goings forth are from long ago from the days of eternity, which is quoted in Matthew 2, 1 to 6. Quotes Micah 5, verse 2. And what else is important about this tower of the flock? What happened there? In Luke chapter 2, in Luke 2, 1 to 20, Luke describes what happened when Jesus was born. He describes what happens there. But tower of the flock means that this tower was used by shepherds for them to keep watch over their sheep. And what happened there in the days of Christ? Look at Luke 2. Luke 2... We'll start at 13, 2.13. And suddenly there appeared with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among men with whom he is pleased. And it came about when the angels had gone away from them into heaven that the shepherds began saying to one another, Let us go straight to Bethlehem then and see this thing that has happened which the Lord has made known to us. These shepherds were likely at this tower or near the tower when the announcement of Christ was made to them. Then they said, well, Jerusalem is just a couple of miles away. Let's go over there and and go see where this Christ is born. Let's go see him. Because the angels just told us that. Micah is, in other words, predicting that God has not forgotten his people. Christ will come into the world. Christ will be born. The king shall be born. And that's why he promises, to you it will come. What will come? Micah 4, 8. Even the former dominion will come, the kingdom of the daughter of Jerusalem. Your kingdom will come. Don't have any fear. You might see a delay. You might see... Desperation, drought, devastation, destruction all around you, death and decay all around you. But don't fear, the kingdom of God will come. The final kingdom will come because the king will come into the world in his time. 700 years before Christ's birth is what Micah is preaching here. The same with Isaiah, 700 years beforehand. So then, now we reach the final paragraph, verses 9 to 13. Now, why do you cry out loudly? Is there no king among you? Or has your counselor perished that agony has gripped you like a woman in childbirth? Writhe and labor to give birth, daughter of Zion, like a woman in childbirth. For now you will go out of the city, dwell in the field, and go to Babylon. There you will be rescued. There the Lord will redeem you from the hand of your enemies." Why are they crying aloud? Why are they in agony? Why are they writhing and in labor like a woman about to give birth? Why are they doing this? Well, they're doing this because they are being afflicted. They're doing it because he's predicting here that exile is going to come. They will be driven away from the city where all the comforts are and they will dwell in the field in the open land, in the pasture where there's no one, only the wild beasts live there. They're going to be walking through there, sleeping overnight there on their way to Babylon because Micah's predicting the Babylonian captivity which would take place about a hundred years after Micah. He's predicting that captivity just like Isaiah predicted it, Jeremiah predicted it, Ezekiel and Daniel lived through it, Jeremiah partially through it. He's predicting the Babylonian captivity, which was fulfilled about a hundred years after Micah. And we can read about this for further study. Second Kings twenty four to twenty five and Second Chronicles thirty six. Second Kings twenty four to twenty five and Second Chronicles thirty six 
it actually happened. That they were defeated miserably, their temple destroyed, their mountain destroyed, Jerusalem destroyed, the people massacred and many exiled and deported out of their homeland to a foreign land, to many foreign lands in the time of the Babylonians. So, yes, it was a real danger and a real pain to them, real hardship to them. But he's asking a question of them. Is there no king among you? Or has your counselor perished? Why is it that you are so distraught? Why is it that you are in such agony that you've forgotten God, your king, or even Christ, your king? Why have you forgotten him? Micah 5.2, he's the ruler in Israel, the eternal ruler. Micah 5.2. In Micah 2.13, Micah 2.13, he says, Their king goes on before them, and the Lord at their head. That's Christ also, Micah 2.13. Their king, the Lord. It's Christ, the king. So, they've lost focus. They've lost hope because they've been distracted from focusing on King, their King, Christ. If they had just mused on Him, thought on Him, remembered Him, prayed to Him, they would not have been so despondent and discouraged. Revelation 1.5 says that Christ is the ruler of the kings of the earth. He is the ruler of the kings of the earth. Revelation 19.16 calls him King of kings and Lord of lords. King of kings and Lord of lords. Revelation 19.16. So when in despair, think about Christ. Follow Christ. Believe in Christ, the powerful king who's able to help us through our afflictions. Because he says in verse 10, there you will be rescued. There the Lord will redeem you from the hand of your enemies. He will redeem us whatever our trials, whatever our problems. 2 Timothy 4.18, the Lord will deliver us from every evil deed, deliver me from every evil deed and bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. 2 Timothy 4.18. Verse 11, Micah 4:11. And now many nations have been assembled against you who say, let her be polluted and let our eyes gloat over Zion. The nations of the world, the unbelieving ones, those that don't believe according to chapter 4, verses 1 to 5, the rest of them, they will attack the people of God. They will assemble against the people of God. They will want her to be polluted. They will gloat over the destruction or the potential destruction, the thought of destruction of the daughter of Zion. They are going to be happy to harass us. They're always happy to harass the people of God. But we should not have any fears when that happens because God has a greater plan for us. Verse 12. Verse 12 is God's greater plan. They want one thing, but God desires another outcome. They want one result. God has the opposite result. Verse 12. But they do not know the thoughts of the Lord, and they do not understand His purpose, for He has gathered them like sheaves to the threshing floor. On the other hand, God has gathered them, and they don't realize God's plans, God's thoughts, God's purposes. They in their evil have assembled themselves, but God in his sovereignty has gathered them together. As what? Sheaves to the threshing floor. To be threshed. Verse 13. And then God will tell his elect, his believers, his people, the daughter of Zion, Arise and thresh, daughter of Zion, 
For your horn I will make iron, and your hoofs I will make bronze, that you may pulverize many peoples, that you may devote to the Lord their unjust gain, and their wealth to the Lord of all the earth. The peoples will pounce on us, but we will be victorious against them, because God has a greater plan. And not only is God going to grant us victory, He's going to use us in that victory. He's going to use us to thresh the wicked, to use our horns and hoofs like, a, like an ox, to use our horns and hoofs like iron and bronze to crush our enemies. Yes. Now, this is also illustrated in Isaiah 10. Isaiah 10, 5 to 11. An illustration of how evildoers have evil intent, but God will use their evil intent for His purpose. Isaiah 10, 5. Woe to Assyria, the rod of my anger. Whose rod? God's rod. The rod of my anger, and the staff in whose hands is my indignation. I send it... I send Assyria against the godless nation and commission it against the people of my fury to capture booty and to seize plunder and to trample them down like mud in the streets. Yet it does not so intend, nor does it plan so in its heart, but rather it is its purpose to destroy and to cut off many nations. Further describing their what they do to destroy versus 8 to 11. Assyria is God's rod, God's staff. God uses wicked, idolatrous Assyria to destroy other nations. They don't intend to be used by God, but God uses them. They just want to do their evil. But God has a plan, a greater plan. Remember Romans 8:28? And God causes all things to work together for good. To whom? To those who love God, to those who are called according to His purpose. All things includes evil things, especially evil things. Which evil things the Apostle illustrates in verses 35 to 39 of Romans 8. He illustrates those evil things that God uses for our good. Let's go there. Romans 8. 35 to 39. Romans 8, 35. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? Just as it is written, for your sake we are being put to death all day long. We were considered as sheep to be slaughtered. But in all these things we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Nothing will separate us from God's love. And God will use the wickedness of man to accomplish his purpose in the world, in his people, and for His glory. And lastly, that God would even use us as His instruments of wrath. Yes, He used Assyria as His instrument of wrath, but He will even use the righteous as His instruments of wrath. 1 Corinthians 6, 1 Corinthians 6, 2-3. 1 Corinthians 6, verse 2. Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is judged by you, are you not competent to constitute the smallest law courts? Do you not know that we shall judge angels? How much more matters of this life? We are to judge the world and to judge the angels, the fallen angels. We are their judge. Yes, God is the judge. Yes, Christ is the judge. But he also delegates 
the task to us to participate in the judgment of the world and evil angels. And Revelation 3.9. Revelation 3.9. Behold, I will cause those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not, but lie. Behold, I will make them to come and bow down at your feet and to know that I have loved you. God will make them bow down at our feet and make them know that he has loved us. God will make that happen, using us as instruments of his judgment against the wicked world of people and demons. This is a word of encouragement for the people of God. Always focus on Christ. Always believe the word of Christ. And don't fear the wrath of man. Instead, follow the word of Christ. Live according to Christ. Follow him faithfully. And God will take care of us from now and forever. Amen. He who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says.